Pray with me one more time, please. Father, amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree. That is what has made your people and shapes your people every single day. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we learn of Christ that we would reflect on the grace, the pity, Father, but as a divine thing, not a flippant thing, the love that you have for us, Father. I praise you, Lord, for what is written in the nails and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that each one of us this morning in every single way would be able to comprehend the truth of this text, Lord, would you help me preach in such a way that contributes to that rather than takes away from it? Would you please fill me with your Holy Spirit that Christ might be presented clearly and truthfully? Father, I thank you so much for my church. I thank you for this family, for these people, for every single one that is gathered in this room. And so, Father, I pray for all of them this morning. And I ask, I pray for me. Lord, let us see Christ more clearly. Please, this we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There's a story told of Franklin Roosevelt, former president who often endured very long receiving lines at the White House, as you would if you were the president. And he complained often that nobody really paid attention to what was said when he would talk to them at these you know, big gala events and things like that. And one day during a reception, he decided to try an experiment. So to each person that passed down the line, as they came close to him and shook his hand, Franklin Roosevelt whispered to them, I murdered my grandmother this morning, just to see what the responses would be. And the guests responded time and time again with phrases like, Marvelous! Keep up the good work, sir. We're proud of you. God bless you, Mr. President. It was not until the end of the line when the president or the ambassador from Bolivia entered through that his words were actually heard. And unfazed, the ambassador looked right at him and whispered back, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> All right, Bolivia. That's listening is a lost art. Technology, I think, is, is, is maybe the main culprit is if we're looking for what's to blame outside of ourselves. It's advanced so much now that families seldom really listen to each other or eat together anymore on our phones, on our devices all the time. Our attention is constantly diverted or divided. We're more frustrated and agitated now as people because it's getting harder and harder to focus on anything, and we notice that people aren't focusing on us. Giving undivided attention to anything is almost impossible, which means we become a culture that demands sound bites to learn, quick information. We don't want to need to listen anymore. If we're going to have to listen to something and really listen, it's going to take time and it's going to take effort. And we don't want to do that anymore. I don't know that we ever did. It's just as technology advances, it 
becomes more and more amplified. But we want to actually focus and do the work of listening less and less and less. But the truth that God has for us in Jesus was never meant to work like a quick, a, a quick reference guide. It's, it's not sound bites. It's not church signs, it's, that, which those are fine. But that's not what at its base Christianity is. It's not a message that's going to be communicated well enough for us to grasp it if we're just demanding that it's quick and clever And it's able to catch our attention. And as that problem deepens, it becomes increasingly important then to place a premium on the Word of God. And what the Word of God is saying to us about God's Son, Jesus Christ. So last week in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul told us that Jesus Christ, the agent, the goal of all creation, is the one through whom God reconciles all things through His death on the cross. And he goes on to teach us here this morning in 121 to 25 that through this reconciling work at Calvary, Jesus will present us as acceptable to God as we are standing firm in the gospel that is being preached to us. Paul labored to make Jesus known to the saints in Colossae because he is their only defense against the plausible arguments of those that questioned the total sufficiency of Christ and threatened their stability in Him. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together, beginning at verse 21 of chapter 1 in Colossians. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So the all things that God will reconcile to Himself through Jesus Christ's work on the cross includes you and I, includes His church, His saints, His people. We do not come into the world morally neutral. We don't come in as blank slates. We come in with our allegiance already defined and decided. We are against God from the minute we're conceived. We come into the world, as Ephesians teaches, dead in trespasses and sins. Not sick, dead without God and without hope. Colossians, Paul says, we're alienated from Him, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We're conceived and we're born estranged from God. We're bent away from Him, hostile to Him in our minds, which is proven by the fact that we do evil deeds. Eventually that nature comes out and it doesn't take very long. And it gets worse as time goes on. And it doesn't matter whether you're going against God on purpose, so to speak, So nobody could read that verse and say, well, I've never thought of myself as rebelling against God on purpose, right? I mean, it's it's not, I'm not trying to. I don't even think of them very much. And, And that may very well be the case. The problem with that mindset is found, or was found, in verses 15 through 20. Christ is the center of everything, for whom everything was made. Therefore, it's impossible to remain neutral with Jesus. Neutrality is a position with Jesus, a hostile position with Jesus. He's the center we're living towards, or He's the center we're running from, but He is always the center. And so Paul preaches the gospel to the church, to people that already know it. He says, you were like this, 
You were alienated. You were hostile to God, doing evil deeds. But now, we are reconciled by the life and death of Jesus so that in verse 22, there was a purpose to it. We would be holy and blameless and above reproach. Which means, Jesus Christ has done the reconciling work that makes us presentable and acceptable to God. Period. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Read that sentence again. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what Paul reveals here is critical, because you see that word, if. Endurance in the faith, stability and steadfastness then, are as much the fruit of gospel hope as their love for one another was way back in verses 4-5. through Do you remember that? The source of their love, the reason they loved one another, was the hope they had in the gospel. Here Paul says that stability and steadfastness and endurance are just as much a fruit of gospel hope. It doesn't come from works. Stability, steadfastness, once again does not come from works. If your stability and steadfastness and your endurance in the faith are dependent on works, they will only last as long as you are doing the things you think you should be doing in order to be stable. Whatever your trust is in, the minute what you're doing to keep it runs out, you lose it. We won't work our way backwards into hope by doing enough good things that we begin to feel hopeful. We will endure when our hope in the gospel, which is the reconciling work of God through Christ, is the thing we look to for confidence and encouragement. So verse 23 is a call to keep believing the same gospel that worked so powerfully to produce in verses 5 and 6. It's been proclaimed, Paul says, in every nation under heaven, including theirs. And where it is proclaimed, it bears fruit and grows in the lives of those who hear it. So to track Paul's flow of thought here, which is important in this section, the gospel that reconciles us and makes us presentable, makes us holy, is the gospel that keeps us. What makes us presentable also keeps us. That's why we cannot lose focus on it. Why it can't be something we just shuffle in with all the other things we listen to that promise life and demand our attention. This powerful, effective, fruitful gospel is the means by which we endure to the end because we must, but we will, because the gospel works. The 24 in the first part of 25. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, that's a tough verse. Because it almost sounds like Paul is being blasphemous there. Filling up, Paul is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. Is he saying that Jesus did not do enough to redeem us? Is that what Paul is saying? That there's something lacking in Christ's work at the cross for the church? In a redeeming way, no. 
And we can be sure of that, not just from the mountain of evidence from all over the rest of the New Testament that Paul did believe the work of Christ was fully sufficient to save and redeem, but because of the immediate text itself in verses 20 through 22, it's clear that the work of Jesus will reconcile. It does save. So what is Paul talking about? What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ that Paul is filling up in his flesh by suffering What's lacking, beloved, is the visibility of the sufferings of Jesus. There's nothing lacking in the redeeming work of Jesus. What is lacking is that they never saw it. And you and I have never seen it. What Paul means here is that the Colossian believers and us were not there to see Jesus suffer for them, and we desperately needed to be. Nothing was lacking in the sufferings of Jesus to buy our redemption. We just didn't get to see it. So God has provided through Paul's constant and accumulated sufferings the opportunity for the church to know something of what it was precisely that bought the reconciliation they have with God. Paul suffers for the sake of the church meaning that the church's enduring faith, which is what Paul is talking about here, is contingent on her constant reflection on the sufferings of Christ through whom we've been reconciled. Paul can actually rejoice then in his sufferings because he's been given a stewardship of ministry in the church and that's who his suffering is helping. That's who benefits from it. Paul's suffering, his imprisonment, his torture... The marks on his body provide a personal presentation of Christ's reconciling sufferings, which they and we did not see, so that what bought our great salvation remains perpetually visible to the church. In other words, beloved, we constantly need to see the cross if we are going to endure. The sufferings of Jesus have to be visible to our eyes all the time. Did you know, have you ever thought about suffering in that way? That that's really what suffering is in our lives. It's the opportunity for God to speak to us and place in front of us the sufferings of Christ which save us and redeem us and reconcile us to Him. Suffering isn't happening in a vacuum. Suffering is the reminder that God has moved to rescue us from it in Christ and will one day take it away forever because He conquered the grave, which is where His suffering took Him. No wonder Paul writes then in another place in Romans 5.3, he says that sentence, suffering produces endurance. Now how does suffering produce endurance? Wouldn't suffering hinder endurance? Suffering uniquely points us in its own way, to the reconciling, redeeming, saving, restoring, suffering of Jesus. So Christ's living and dying to make me holy is what makes me holy. And so Paul's suffering had gospel relevance every day in Colossae and now in Moundsville. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired texts like he did in 2 Corinthians so that we would know the depths to which Paul suffered. We need to see it because that's where we see Jesus. Suffering is where we uniquely see Jesus. 
We're completely dependent on remembering the cross. That's what this text is telling us. It cannot become peripheral. It cannot become a sidebar. That's why Paul has been given a stewardship of ministry for the church. The middle of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul's stewardship from God was to make the word of God fully known, because it wasn't before, by revealing the hidden mystery of his word to the church. When Paul uses the word mystery, he's speaking of how God's revelation could not be fully understood until the coming of Jesus. Now, Just as a, as, as a bit of a sidebar here, we have to apply that to how we read and understand all Scripture. Fullness of understanding God's Word was impossible until Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and ascended back to the Father. In fact, Paul was commissioned by God with a ministry precisely because the full revelation, the ability to fully understand and comprehend, were not accessible or understandable before Jesus came. So we have to remember that as we try to make sense of what we see in the Bible. The Old Testament cannot be understood until it is interpreted by Christ. The New Testament is the decoder for everything else in Scripture. The Gospel reveals the whole of Scripture then. makes it plain to the world that Christ is the reconciling center of everything. He's how everything is explained. He's how everything is understood. He informs everything. Everything before Him and after Him was created for Him, including the Scripture. And it was to the church, not to any other group, beloved. It was to the church, to His saints, in this text that this revelation was given. To them, God meant to bring full revelation. To them, God meant to uncover the mystery. Look at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What makes this mystery then, once hidden, now revealed, so rich with glory and hope, is that through its revelation, what we're coming to understand is that Christ Himself, the one from verses 15 through 20, now dwells inside of His covenant people, even the Gentile ones, the non-Jewish ones. In Christ, God has come to dwell in us through His Son as His covenant people, in Colossae, in Moundsville. Paul thinks this is big enough and beautiful enough to accomplish the purpose for which he wrote the letter. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the mystery revealed, the Word of God fully known, that's Jesus as he's going to tell us in chapter 2, verse 2, and what makes that revelation so full of glorious riches is that this Jesus dwells in you individually, church. Paul proclaims Jesus as the revelation of God's mystery, the fullness of God's Word and God's will revealed, so that he may present everyone in the church mature in Christ. We see the word present again. Think of, bring in verse 22 then of chapter 1 that, Christ has reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach to God 
in verse 22. And in verse 28, Paul is saying that the means through which this presenting will take place is by the church hearing the proclamation of Jesus and what he has accomplished. That's the means to God's end. As we hear Christ proclaimed, we take hold of what God has done for us in Christ. That's how powerful the word is. The proclamation of Jesus accomplishes verses 22 and 23. It accomplishes verse 28. We proclaim Jesus to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the point. That's the goal of all ministry. Of all of it. So, beloved, if the books we're reading and the sermons we're hearing and the conferences and the events that we're watching aren't means to hear Christ proclaimed, then they are not building us up to maturity in Christ. That's impossible. We've forgotten how to listen to the sufficiency and the greatness of Jesus. So we've done what Paul said we would do to Timothy. We've heaped up teachers for ourselves that scratch our ears by telling us that we are great and we are special and we're awesome and we're beautiful and we're wonderful and nothing can stop us. Of course what the enemy would do is twist Scripture to deceive us. Of course that's what he would do. He was crazy enough to try that with Jesus in the wilderness. God's Word and the ministry that flows from it are not there to tell us how great we are, but how great Christ is. You don't need you to get better. You need Jesus to get better. This was Paul's ministry. This is all ministry. Or it's unbiblical. No matter how many verses somebody can toss up to defend this self-exalting theology that's just permeating the church. No. There's a great publication called the Babylon Bee. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It uses, I think it's just a social media site, but they may have a website as well, that uses extremely poignant and hilarious satire to shake up the thinking of Christians, and I, I think it does it in a good way. I think that's a very clever thing to do because it forces us to look at truth through sarcasm as a means of helping us see more clearly. I, I, I love that. I think that's an echo of what Paul was doing on Mars Hill at the Areopagus. You, you find things that the world uses and you redeem them in a way. I don't mean that in a saving way, but you take them and use them that we might learn, that truth might be proclaimed. And that's how I look at the Babylon Bee. Besides that, it's hilarious. It just, it puts up headlines. If you ever, if we are friends on social media and there's ever a headline or something that you see and you think, what? It's probably a Babylon B headline, so keep reading because they're hilarious. But I, there was one this week that goes right with this idea because this is how, um, pervasive this idea is that there would be a, you know, a, a reference point that would be sarcastic that we could understand what they're talking about. The headline on one article read like this. Woman returns from conference deeply convicted of how awesome she is. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, if you go to some of these things, I, it's just, let's get together and celebrate how great we are. You say, well, is, is that bad? Yeah. It's not the gospel. Yeah. 
Especially when it's done in the name of Jesus. That's not neutral. That's not just, oh, it's no big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. There is no lasting refuge in hearing about how great we are, beloved. It will fill our lives with even more tension. Because here's the dirty little secret in that. If you're telling everybody that they're great, they're going to have a hard time loving you enough to think you're great because they think they're great and you don't love them enough because they're so great. It's an endless maze of self-exalting death when there is no Christ. And you don't, you don't make it Christian by using His name to puff you and I up. The only lasting refuge in a world like ours is one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created that loved us to the point of being willing to come and rescue us by His own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is awesome, so we proclaim Him so that you and I will be whole and stable. Beloved, that message was the reason that Paul existed. Look at 129 to verse 3 of chapter 2. For this, to proclaim Jesus, to present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That's us! Paul struggled and died for us in this way. Paul's not saving us. Paul's not redeeming us. But he's pointing us to the one that can in his struggling. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul brings up another Gentile church here, Laodicea, who shows up again in Revelation. They weren't doing well because they're like Colossae in that they've never seen Paul face to face. They've never had the opportunity to visibly behold the marks of his suffering. So again, everything Paul is teaching here, everything is for people that hadn't seen him or Jesus suffer. So in that, we have to find how relevant it is for us. For us in Moundsville. Because according to Paul, the farther we get from the cross where Jesus died, the deeper our need to see it becomes. We don't mature into a place where it's, it's way back in the rearview mirror and we've moved beyond it. The farther we get from it in literal space, time, and history... Literal seconds, literal minutes, literal hours, literal days, literal years. We need to see it more the farther we get from it. We're 2,000 years away and counting. Which means the church today is more desperate, if you will, to see Jesus than even Colossae was. Paul's struggle was tied to that. It motivated him in ministry because his burden was to make Jesus more visible to the church so that their hearts would be encouraged by seeing Him more clearly. It's through this, this knowledge of Christ, just of Christ, 
that we come to understand the things we need to in order to live with and walk in full assurance. Beloved, please note that full assurance is gained through understanding as we hear Christ proclaimed. Making Jesus visible is the key because in Him all, the Bible says, in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, which means, think about this, not one single treasure of wisdom and knowledge will be found in anything or anyone else. In Him are all of them. All of them. Hidden deeper and deeper in Jesus, beloved. In one person, in one place, are all the varied treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we honestly think we're ever going to reach a point then where we've heard all about Jesus there is to hear? That we know everything there is to know. I've never met a person that thought that about themselves that was charitable or kind or loving. So maybe they don't know what they think they know. Jesus is an endless source of precious jewels and costly stones and hidden treasures, beloved, of wisdom and knowledge. Verses 4 and 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body... See, that theme runs all through that text, doesn't it? For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Christ proclaimed. Christ proclaimed. Not Christ assumed. Not Christ assumed. Not Christ in the background. Not Christ on the periphery. Christ Proclaimed is the defense against plausible arguments. So the chief issue they're facing, the thing currently keeping them from this full assurance of spiritual wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God's will in Christ is the plausible arguments set up to keep them from believing that Christ is enough. Plausible arguments that are set up to keep them from believing that Christ is the key to everything. That Christ alone saves and reconciles us and makes us holy. Paul is not worried about foolishness. Here. Paul's not worried about nonsense. Notice what the Holy Spirit inspired here. The words the Spirit inspired. He's not worried about implausible arguments. He's not worried about things that we know when we hear them or see them are nonsense. He's not worried about those things. Paul's concern that created the need for this letter to be written is the plausible arguments the Colossian believers were hearing. Arguments that probably mix in some Scripture to make their points. So, beloved, we just need to know the ability to quote and reference and memorize and recite Scripture does not mean someone understands the Bible. Anyone, with the Holy Spirit or without, can memorize words on a page. Anyone. Some people are better at it than others even. So that doesn't mean anything. The ability to regurgitate texts 
means you're in that regard as smart as the devil. That that's all it means. Understanding the Bible depends on the extent to which the revelation of God's mystery, Christ, is being sufficiently taken into account to understand it. Paul's concern is the kind of arguments that have just enough truth mixed in with error for us to believe them. Or just enough knowledge or wisdom mixed in with foolishness to make an argument appealing to us. Plausible arguments delude us. The King James calls them enticing words that beguile us. They deceive and mislead us because they're so persuasive. Plausible arguments are so dangerous because they seem reasonable, even probable sometimes. God is not denying that those kinds of arguments exist in the world. He's not blind to them. He knows they're a threat to His church. But the Colossian believers and the Moundsville believers, we are not to evaluate arguments by human standards. We are to measure all things by Christ. Everything. We have a source of ultimate truth and reality that we're drawing from. And He made everything. He owns everything, controls everything, and is the one for whom everything was made. He will reconcile. He will make things right. He will bring life and peace. Nothing else. The power and the lure of plausibility is why wolves dress up like sheep. And we have to be aware. Beloved, it infiltrates us all the time. What is false? What is a lie? What is not Christ? It's, it's, it's a threat all the time. It may seem plausible and reasonable or even probable, for example, that the key to happiness is to think more highly of yourself. It may seem plausible and reasonable and maybe even probable that the way to salvation is through your own goodness. That the cure for the world's brokenness is policy and politicians. That the way to change the culture is to gripe and complain and boycott like bullies. That the way to have assurance and endure is to focus on your own righteousness. All those answers to those problems and questions may seem plausible and seem reasonable and sometimes even feel probable, but how Jesus answers those questions is the only truth. The only truth. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. It doesn't matter what the question is. Jesus is always the answer. Jesus isn't plausible, per se, but He is over all truth. Jesus shapes and determines and declares what is real. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Everything was created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent in everything. All the fullness of God dwells in Him. 
He will reconcile all things. Jesus Christ blows plausibility out of the water. He's above every argument. Everything. He is the rock. Everything else is sand. Everything is sand except Jesus. And we need Him this morning. We need Him this morning. So there are four implications of all this. I'm going to say them very quickly that I pray we ponder long after we leave this morning. Just four. There's probably more. Since Jesus Christ has completed the only sufficient reconciling work, we are now presentable to God. Period. Point. Blank. It is really, actually, truly, literally, forever, irrevocably finished, beloved. It's done. Stop striving and rest. Striving as a believer is striving to rest, to believe the gospel. Secondly, since Jesus Christ has completed the only sufficient reconciling work, we must keep our eyes on the cross where that work was accomplished in order to endure. We will defect, beloved, if we look to or listen to anything else to find the hope that makes us secure. And every single day we get further away from the cross, which means our need for it is exponential. We need to hear it proclaimed. That need increases every single day. Thirdly, since in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, hearing Him proclaimed is the key to understanding everything. Everything. Those three lead to this. Since in Jesus Christ we are fully reconciled to God, and since in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, hearing Him proclaimed is our only defense against the voices that question His sufficiency and threaten our stability in Him. Since Jesus Christ, since in Jesus Christ, we are fully reconciled to God, and since in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, hearing Him proclaimed is our only defense against the voices that question His sufficiency and threaten our stability in Him. So, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Jesus. This is how God reconciles us. This is how God accomplishes His will in the church. This is how God accomplishes His will in us. Listen, beloved. Listen to Jesus. He is speaking in His Word every time we open it. To who else can we go? Only one. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. I'm going to pray this morning to close us before we take the Lord's Supper.
If you know Christ and you struggle to see Him clearly or are struggling in any way, if you're threatened by anything that is shaking your confidence and your hope, you're welcome to come and pray this morning. As we sing this invitation together, you're welcome to come and pray. You're always welcome. I'll be here in the front. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't believed on this one that died for sinners, that lived for sinners, that is risen for sinners, that shows mercy to anyone that comes to Him by grace through faith, and all are welcome to come this morning. I'll be here. There are others that can come and pray with you if you would like or if you need anyone. So let's remember that. I'm going to pray. We'll sing and I'll be down in front. And then we'll have the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank You for this time that You've given to us this morning. God, I thank You for Your Word and how You work in us by it, by the proclamation of Jesus alone. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to hear and see clearly this morning. For those that believe and struggle, God, to hear you, for there are things in the ears of their souls that are blocking the truth of Christ. Lord, would you set them free this morning? Kill those roadblocks. Help them, give them peace and rest, Father. And Lord, for any in this room that do not know you, that walked into this room dead in trespasses and sins, Father, raise them from the dead and bring them forward this morning to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, you can and will save anyone in this room that calls out to you. So, Father, I pray that you would do it. Would you have your way? We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.